the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering Today's program. Today I have the opportunity to talk with John Schneider. Dr. Schneider is the director of Nursing Home Ministries. We're going to talk about post-pandemic ministry to seniors in nursing facilities and what's next. He's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour of uh, today's program. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said in an interview on Saturday that bringing back mask mandates is under active consideration and that he is part of the discussion around the decision. Well, critics are reacting to uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, who says new mask mandates are under consideration, saying this sure is not about science. Well, Fauci was questioned by CNN on whether he was part of the conversation with top health officials on whether to impose a nationwide mask mandate for vaccinated Americans and whether he thinks masks should be brought back. Well, Dr. Fauci said implementing mask mandates is under active consideration and that he's part of it. Uh, Fauci's comments came with a rising number of covid cases from the Delta variant with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention director Rochelle Walensky claiming the variant is spreading with incredible efficiency and now represents more than 83 percent of the virus circulating the United States. Well, individuals who are hospitalized with the infection are now largely those who are unvaccinated, but not exclusively. About 99 percent of individuals, according to uh, Kristen Chow, the assistant professor of UCLA, uh, UCLA School of Nursing. Well, Dr. Fauci added that CDC guidance still recommends that vaccinated Americans do not need to wear masks, but that local officials have the discretion to implement mandates should they choose. So it's a bit confusing. They're saying that the CDC is saying, yeah, we're considering Uh, Mandatory masks nationwide. On the other hand, no, vaccinated people don't need them. In other developments, COVID-19 immunity wanes, but um, a third of uh, uh, who have received the shot are still rarely um, needed, according to BioNTech's CEO. And the COVID-19 pill race is heating up as a Japanese firm vies for Pfizer and Merck, who are also working on a similar um, pill for those with COVID-19. City and nonprofit canvassers are going door to door to remote COVID-19 vaccinations with the Delta variant surging. More vaccines are mandated. Um, uh, rather, mandates are likely once the FDA grants full approval and not just emergency approval. Well, former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement Tom Homan is personally disgusted with the mounting border chaos and warns ICE's morale is in the toilet. Well, Tom Homan told Life, Liberty and Levin on Saturday that he is personally disgusted with the situation on the U.S. southern border amid new reports that authorities are struggling to cope with the backlog of migrants being allowed into the United States. Personally, I'm disgusted because you're right, Mark. Mark Levin was the interviewer. I spent almost 35 years. I started as a border patrol agent on that border. I worked my way up uh, up the chain, rung by rung, he said. And I was the first director of ICE to actually uh, come up, come through the ranks. So I spent my whole career doing this. 
And I can tell you without any doubt in the world that President Trump gave us the most secure border I've seen in my entire career, almost 35 years. That is just a stone cold fact. Uh, You know, regardless if you like the man or not, he did more to secure this border than any president I've worked for. And now it is all but destroyed within weeks by the Biden administration, end quote. Well, as for former President Trump's critics, Holman said, for the people um, uh, that think that Trump's administration's policies were cruel, inhumane, I would argue that I worked for six different presidents. The policies uh, worked. Let me ask this question to the American people listening. When illegal immigration is down 60, 80 percent, Uh, How many women are being raped by the cartels? How many children aren't dying? How many millions of dollars do the cartels not make on smuggling drugs? How many fentanyl overdoses didn't occur? So the fact is, President Trump saved lives. He secured the border. He went on to assert. Well, Holman said that he has no qualms telling viewers that Biden sold out this country to win the presidency. And now uh, we see that action with open borders. And people say, well, this is incompetence. This is mismanagement. No, it's not. Their plan is coming together perfectly. This is open borders, he said. Well, in other developments, border migrants are being dropped off at bus stations as authorities struggle to cope. A U.S. Senate GOP report finds that the Biden administration is spending $2 billion to suspend border wall construction. And Missouri's attorney general is optimistic ahead of a hearing challenging President Biden's reversal of the Trump remain in Mexico policy. Well, Trey Gowdy is calling Representative Bush a hypocrite. He wants to defund your police while dishing out $70,000 on private security. Well, Sunday night in America, host Trey Gowdy tore into progressive squad member Representative Cori Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, after campaign filings revealed she spent a shocking $70,000 on private security while publicly calling for reduced police budgets nationwide. Members of Congress are spending more money than ever on their personal security, Gowdy pointed out. He's a former GOP congressman. He told viewers Sunday night, it's a a, a track, a tragic reflection of the times we live in. Members of Congress have been threatened with all acts of violence. Because of these threats of violence, members of Congress are allowed to spend campaign money on their safety. Safety is priority number one for members of Congress, as it should be. But what about you, he said in his opening monologue. Well, Gowdy encouraged viewers to consider their personal safety as the country grapples with the unprecedented crime wave. Do you feel safe? Could your neighborhood benefit from a greater police presence? Is your place of work armed with metal detectors or guard dogs, he asked. Are the streets you walk and drive down lined with police cars? Do you have personal security when you travel? I understand full well while members of Congress spend money on their personal safety. I just don't understand why some members of Congress don't feel the same way about your safety. If their safety is the highest priority, shouldn't your safety be too? Well, in other news, um, liberal mega donor George Soros has directed a million dollars to an activist group attempting to defund the police as violent crimes surge in major urban centers across the country. Soros sent the million dollars via his color of change pack on the 14th of May, avoiding the Federal Elections Commission files obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. The organization describes itself as the nation's largest online racial justice organization and actively engages in efforts to defund police departments, such as spreading an online petition calling for divesting from and dismantling the system that unjustly harm black people. The group also backed a push by the Milwaukee City Council to defund the police. By the way, the majority of African-Americans across the country do not support defunding the police. 
uh, their communities um, disproportionately are impacted by this uh, this effort. Policing is a violent institution, this group goes on to say, that must end. The group's president wrote in a statement supportive of the movement, we imagine a country where there is enough money to educate our children, care for our sick, and feed those who are financially unstable. Defunding the police allows for this vision. Well, it wouldn't even come close to that utopian vision, but that's another subject for another day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the second hour, John Schneider. Dr. Schneider is the director of Nursing Home Ministries. We're going to talk about how the ministry fared through the pandemic and what next in the nursing facilities where seniors, well, they need our help. Well, border migrants are being dropped off at bus stations as authorities struggle to cope. And in other developments, a Texas Democrat fears rural cop retaliation for fleeing the state. Uh, California deputies uh, were injured in an hours-long standoff. And United Airlines evacuated a plane ready for takeoff after multiple passengers received an ominous text message. Apparently, the same message. Well, one major city could soon tax rich drivers. And senators reveal the final roadblock before setting the... Uh, rather settling on $1 trillion in the infrastructure legislation. Well, investors are buying American and Costco. They've opened new warehouses in three states with more to come. Is that a good sign? Republicans are vowing to stop the Democratic efforts to force women to register for the draft. Republican Senators Tom Cotton of Arkansas, an Iraq War veteran known as a hawk on defense issues, and Josh Hawley of Missouri voted against the proposal. Our military has welcomed women for decades and are stronger for it. But America's daughters shouldn't be drafted against their will. I oppose this amendment in committee and I'll work to remove it before the defense bill passes, Cotton wrote on Twitter on Friday. Larry Elder has jumped ahead of other California recall candidates from that story. Radio personality, Salem radio personality, Larry Elder stormed ahead of the uh, polling with 16 percent beating out second place finishers. Former um, San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer and 2018 gubernatorial candidate John Cox, who both scored a respective six percent of the vote, both down from higher percentages scored in the May Berkeley poll when there were fewer candidates to choose from. Assemblyman Kevin Kiley uh, from Rockland and uh, reality star Caitlyn Jenner came in a distant third, tied with 4% each. Another poll shows optimism about the country's direction. It's plummeting, down nearly 20 points just since May. And this is coming out of a pandemic. Molly Hemingway says since liberal corporate media polls systematically undercount negative news for Democrats, the real numbers are even worse. Well, the Olympic Games opening ceremony bombed in TV ratings. The story doesn't dare note that people were turned off by recent displays of anti-U.S. sentiment by U.S. Olympic athletes. And the Wall Street Journal reports U.S. population growth has ground to a halt. From that story, in half of all states last year, more people died than were born up from five states in 2019. Early estimates show that the total U.S. population grew 0.35% for the year ending in July 1st, 2020, the lowest ever documented, and growth is expected to remain near flat this year. Later on in that same article, they write, with the birth rate already drifting down, the nudge from the pandemic could result in what amounts to a scar on population growth, researchers say, which could be deeper than those left by historic periods of economic turmoil, such as the Great Depression and the stagnation and inflation of the 1970s, because it is underpinned by a shift toward lower fertility. 
The Michigan legislature has stripped emergency powers from the governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Governor Whitmer uh, will be stripped of emergency powers she wielded during the pandemic. On Wednesday, the Michigan State House passed the Unlock Michigan initiative by a vote of 60 to 48. Dave Boucher with the Detroit Free Press reported, well, the state Senate had already done so on the 15th of July. As was reported last month, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the state had to certify the voter initiative. Such an initiative repeals the Emergency Powers of Governor Act of 1945. Los Angeles County supervisors plan to vote on a program to provide guaranteed income to certain young residents. The age that most desperately needs to learn to work, age 18 to 24, would instead get $1,200 a month, well, to do nothing. Dr. Piper says fake Christianity is growing worldwide. From the story, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out. Ms. Barna states MTD is especially what I would call fake Christianity because it has some Christian elements in it, but it's not really biblical. It's not really Christian. And what is MTD exactly? Well, Ms. Barna answers the moralistic perspective is we're here to be good people and to try to do good. The therapeutic aspect is everything is supposed to be geared toward making me feel good about myself, ultimately to make me happy. Deism is the idea that God created the world but has no direct involvement in it. Basically, according to MTD, as she names it, there is a distant God who just wants everyone to be nice, and the purpose of life is to be happy. American Christians who have adopted this philosophy have elevated personal definitions of right and wrong above any objective standard of truth like the Bible. Well, many families are choosing to continue homeschooling after the pandemic lockdown, even as schools reopen from the story. The specific reasons vary pretty widely. Some families who spoke with the Associated Press have children with special educational needs. Others seek a faith based curriculum or say their local school is flawed. The common denominator, they tried homeschooling on what they thought was a temporary basis and found it beneficial to their children. Jan Van Lahr says because they still have to mask up and social distance and all kinds of ineffective, unscientific, well, stuff to replace the word she actually used on Twitter. Well, the media openly mocked a man's death because he rejected vaccines. They've done this in the past with known people. But in this case, it's an unknown man in his 30s that a local ABC News channel has decided must be ridiculed upon his death. Hmm. Well, on this day in history, 1775, the Continental Congress establishes a post office and appoints Benjamin Franklin as its postmaster general. 1908, U.S. Attorney General Charles Bonaparte orders the creation of a force of special agents that are the forerunner of the FBI. That's 1908. 1953, Fidel Castro begins his revolt against Batista with an unsuccessful attack on an army barracks in eastern Cuba. Castro would oust Batista in 1959, some six years later. On this day in history, 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush signs the Americans with Disabilities Act. 2002, the Republican-led House votes 295 to 132 to create an enormous Department of Homeland Security in the biggest government reorganization in decades. This, of course, the year after 9-11. 2006, in a dramatic turnaround from her first murder trial, Andrea Yates is found not guilty by reason of insanity by a Houston jury in the bathtub drownings of her five children. She is committed to a state mental hospital. 
2016, Hillary Clinton becomes the first woman to be nominated for president by a major political party at a Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, the Supreme Court sides with uh, President Trump administration in lifting a freeze backed by a lower court that had halted plans to use $2.5 billion in Pentagon funds to build a border wall. Well, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee split along party lines during a Thursday morning vote on President Joe Biden's nominee to lead the Bureau of Land Management. Democrats on the committee unanimously backed the nominee, Tracy Stone Manning, in the face of fierce Republican opposition over her involvement in a 1989 eco-terrorism incident and her alleged dishonesty to the committee about the incident. Tracy Stone Manning collaborated with eco-terrorists. She lied to this committee and she continues to harbor extremist views most Americans find reprehensible. That's a quote from Senator John Barrasso out of Wyoming, ranking member of the committee. Before the vote, she is thoroughly disqualified to hold the position of director of land management. Well, Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, chairman of the committee, rejected Becerro's uh, argument, saying that he was unable to find any credible evidence in the trial record that Stone Manning's personally spiked any trees, conspired with eco-terrorists or lied to his committee. Ms. Stone Manning has never charged, uh, was never charged with spiking trees. She was never tried with spiking trees, he said a second time. And none of the men who did spike the trees ever suggested that she did, nor was she a target of the investigation, Manchin said, adding, being called to testify before a grand jury does not make someone a target of a grand jury investigation. End quote. Well, following the committee's 10-10 vote on Stone Manning's confirmation, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, out of New York has the option to discharge her nomination and bring it before the full Senate for a vote. Stone Manning is unlikely to receive any Republican support in the full chamber uh, when it holds a vote. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell called on Biden on Friday to withdraw her nomination because of her involvement in the 1989 eco-terrorism incident. With the Senate split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, Stone Manning will need Vice President Kamala Harris to break that tie if a vote divides along party lines. The Daily Caller News Foundation first reported the contents of an anonymous and threatening letter Stone Manning sent to the Forest Services in 1989 on behalf of a former roommate and friend, warning that a local forest in Idaho, set to be logged, had been sabotaged with tree spikes and own eco-terrorism tactic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Dr. John Schneider, Director of Nursing Home Ministries. What happens now? We're sort of post-pandemic. There's access uh, ministering to seniors. What are they doing? And what can we do uh, to acknowledge those honored citizens? Well, you can join Jim Daly of Focus on the Family and Amy Ford from Embrace Grace every Friday night now through the end of August for a series of inspiring conversations to encourage you to live as a pro-life parent, friend and everyday hero. Together, they're going to gather around a table each week with friends to discuss six unique topics surrounding life. Every episode will include guests from all walks of life, including doctors, college students, disabled persons and pro-life leaders. You can find out more at FocusOnTheFamily.com. Slash C Life. So it sounds like a pretty good program. All right. 
Well, as concern over the highly contagious uh, contagious COVID-19 Delta variant rises, government workers are facing some new mandates to get vaccinated. Well, the Department of Veterans Affairs announced today that it will require its 115,000 most patient-facing workforce uh, to be vaccinated against COVID-19 in the next two months. The workers affected by the new policy, including doctors, dentists, registered nurses, physician assistants, and some specialists will have eight weeks to get fully vaccinated lest they face penalties, including possible removal. I am doing this because it's the very best to keep our veterans safe, full stop. That's a quote from Dennis McDonough, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, reportedly speaking to the New York Times. Now, while the VA is the first federal agency to mandate the shots, it joins the state of California, New York City and numerous hospital change in instituting a vaccine or testing requirement. Also on Monday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that he would require all municipal workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 before schools reopen in September. Those who do not comply will face weekly testing. Well, the policy will apply to some 340,000 city workers, including teachers and police officers. The city also issued a similar mandate for its public health uh, care workers last week. New York follows San Francisco, which has already put vaccine requirements in place specifically for high-risk workplaces. Meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced on Monday that he will require all state employees and health workers health care workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or face testing at least weekly, making California the first state to impose such a requirement on government employees. Roughly 246,000 state employees there would be impacted, and that requirement begins the 9th of August. It will be implemented by the 23rd, according to the governor. Well, Monday uh, policy, or rather Monday's policies come after the city of San Francisco, several Bay Area counties, the University of California and numerous hospital systems nationwide have announced similar measures will be put in place. Last month, a federal judge in Texas dismissed a lawsuit filed by employees of Houston Medical Hospital or Methodist Hospital who challenged the hospital's COVID-19 vaccine requirement. A lot of questions surrounding mandated um, vaccinations that are emergency approved. Now, again, there's some discussion about the FDA lifting the emergency approval and giving it the standard approval, which might make a difference. Well, soon uh, we're going to soon know more about our bodies than ever before. The question is, are we ready? I mean, enough of us already go to WebMD and other websites to try to diagnose ourselves, but apparently we're on the cusp of knowing a great deal. Tests could show the probability of illness occurring in 5, 10, or 20 years with huge moral and ethical implications. I mean, do you want to know the likelihood that you're going to contract uh, cancer and what the trajectory will be? Well, we're soon going to have to uh, make up our, our own minds and choices about social distancing, wearing masks, and travel. When the legal enforcement of rules is lifted, the way in which each of us deals with the risk of COVID-19 will be down to personal judgment. Well, essentially, it's down to that now until mandates are put in place. But how well equipped are we to make these decisions and more serious decisions coming down the road? Well, graphs and data can help explain things. But what's also needed is a deep understanding of how science works and perhaps most important of all, a sense of how to weigh up the odds of coming down with the disease and how it might affect us, not in an abstract way, but in our day to day lives. And what many people don't realize is that COVID-19 is just the start. Now, very soon, we're going to be exposed to all kinds of complicated information about the state of our health, including our personal level of risk for any number of illnesses. More and more, 
Uh, We're going to have to make decisions based on new science about almost every aspect of life. Now, this is because progress in human biology is accelerating at an unprecedented rate, and there's no sign of it slowing down. On the horizon are entirely new ways of defining, screening, and manipulating health, completely new insights about diet, and any number of ideas for how babies can be born if we're willing to manipulate that process. Things are not moving along incrementally. Rather, we're on the brink of a revolution. We're used to uh, thinking about cancer, for instance, in terms of a simple list of things to do or not to do to lessen the likelihood. Don't smoke. Uh, Do use sunscreen, eat more or less of this or that type of food. But as a result of ever more detailed analysis of our bodies, we're going to increasingly need to think about this and any number of other diseases in a different way in terms of the probability of their occurrence. Now, each of us is unique, a combination of attributes arising from our genes, our upbringing, as well as what we eat, when we eat, how much we sleep, how much exercise we get, and so on. The stress level, our exposure to pollutants, pollen, bacteria, myriad of other influences. But for all this profound individuality, there's also a finite set of recurring patterns that can be used to analyze our health. To take a familiar example, the idea of the body mass index a value derived from a person's weight and height, it's used to categorize us as underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese. It's useful as it indicates an increased risk of health problems like type 2 diabetes, and steps can be taken to reduce the likelihood of this occurring. But the advent of more advanced metrics lead us into more nuanced probabilities. For instance, consider the Human Cell Atlas. It's a huge global project in which more than 10,000 scientists have come together to identify and classify all 37 trillion cells of the human body. Now, by comparing individual cells in depth, by analyzing the level to which genes are activated in them, how many um, copies of each protein is present in them and so on, we can classify single cells with unprecedented detail. This is very likely to lead to a deeper understanding of the way in which tissues and organs are constructed, not generally, but specifically, which cells derive from which other cells in the body and what goes wrong in disease. But this will also enable deep analysis of the body's cells in a biopsy, a blood sample, or even a nasal swab. Well, currently, a person's health is often assessed by a blood count, a simple record of how many platelets, red or white cells, are present. But building on the human cell atlas and related research, we're going to be able to examine in greater detail the types, the status and history of a person's blood cells. Now, this is especially important, rather, for white blood cells, a catch all term for countless different types of immune cells, which we already know can vary hugely between um, people. Now, one instance, the state of a person's immune system correlates with the symptoms a person is likely to have if infected with SARS-CoV-2, to give us a contemporary example. Markers of immune activity, they correlate with a person's mental health. One recent analysis concluded that particular pro-inflammatory secretions from immune cells, uh, I won't go into much more detail, are found at higher levels in people who are depressed. So as we learn about the composition and the status of the body's immune system, this will inevitably establish new ways of assessing health. Uh, To give you another example, one analysis shows that all sorts of immune cells are important in the construction of a placenta. What they do isn't yet clear. This is at the cutting edge of knowledge. But in the future, we may well be able to use that information to detect um, uh, problems in pregnancy before a pregnancy occurs. Well, 
Again, this is um, detailed stuff, but it all points to uh, the, the notion that we will have the capacity at some point, if God wills and we survive, to know in greater detail what the likelihood of our health will be moving forward. There are obvious implications here for health insurance premiums, for, for premiums, for example, but just as importantly for our physiological well-being, being categorized as having this or that risk or flaw can be deeply troubling, both for an individual person's sense of self and for society's view of human diversity and whether or not you're uh, considered uh, fit for a particular position. Well, to equip us all for this, we need to reach a new level of public understanding about health, about disease, risk, and probability. And we've got a ways to go before we're prepared for all of that. We need to embrace uh, science as a virtual part of our culture, even more than we do now. And whether or not it's reliably communicated and by whom, well, at stake is not just our health and well-being, but our sense of what it means to be human and to be healthy. Rather interesting prospect for the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we'll hear from Dr. John Schneider of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back 49 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Dr. John Schneider, Director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll find out how they fared through the pandemic and beyond. Well, NFL players are firing back after the uh, the league issued a memo on Thursday last informing all 32 clubs that COVID-19 outbreaks among unvaccinated players could result in the forfeiture of games and loss of play. Well, Arizona Cardinals uh, veteran White uh, uh, wideout uh, DeAndre Hopkins tweeted shortly after the news broke that the new policy makes him question his future in the NFL. Never thought I would say this, but being put in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. Well, Hopkins deleted the tweet a short time later, but sent another tweet that read freedom question mark. Well, the new policy is being interpreted as essentially mandating the vaccine without actually mandating the vaccine. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said that in a memo that the league doesn't intend to add another week of um, uh, to accommodate games that need to be rescheduled because of COVID-19 outbreaks. It further stated that outbreaks among unvaccinated players could result in forfeiture and loss of pay for both teams if the games are canceled. Los Angeles Rams cornerback uh, Jalen Ramsey He also took to Twitter to say that the NFL is pressuring, influencing players to get vaccinated under the new policies. Some of y'all clearly didn't get what I'm saying here, LOL, Ramsey said of an earlier tweet he posted, saying that he knows two people who tested positive for COVID despite being vaccinated. Well, the NFL is pressuring, influencing guys to get the vaccine. They're saying that there is an outbreak. The team will be penalized heavily. My point is no teammate of mine will feel that pressure from me because whether you're vaccinated or not, there is still a chance of giving COVID. Well, just because of my teammates personally decided not to get the vaccine, I won't think they are a bad teammate, he added. That's all. It's all love, end quote. Well, Hopkins replied to Ramsey's message saying his girlfriend's brother, who was in the military, suffered from heart problems shortly after getting the vaccine. When you stand for something, they hate you. Well, Seattle Seahawks uh, DJ Reed expressed his hesitancy to get the vaccine, saying he only got it because he doesn't want to hinder his team. The latest figures reported by the NFL Network show that more than 78 percent of the players have received at least one dose of the vaccine, while 14 teams have 85 percent of uh, players vaccinated. 
Well, a Minnesota fourth grade student and her mother expressed concern to their local school board after her class was given an equity survey. And you know what that means in the 21st century. And students were told not to tell her parents about the activity. Now, sitting alongside her mother, Kelsey, the fourth grader, told uh, uh, interviewers on Monday that the questions were confusing and it made her very nervous and uncomfortable when the students were told not to tell their parents. Well, according to a video uploaded by um, uh, Alpen News, when students didn't understand some of the survey questions, they were told by a teacher in the uh, uh, Sartell St. Stephen School District to not repeat the survey questions to their parents. Now, that was a red flag even for these um, middle schoolers. The survey asked questions that some of the students uh, didn't understand. And after hearing the explanation um, from the teacher, some still didn't comprehend the, the survey, the center squad reported. Well, the George Floyd incident sparked a nationwide conversation on race and the role of policing. School districts across America are pushing critical race theory on students uh, to attempt to contextualize current events on matters of race. Well, CRT curriculum has sparked a nationwide conversation about the role of race and racism in school districts across the country and whether or not CRT is itself racist. Often compared by critics to actual racism, CRT is a school of thought that generally focuses on how power structures and institutions impact racial minorities. Uh, Kelsey Yasgar said that although parents were informed that the equality test or the audit was taking place, they were not informed on the date of the activity and not given other details. She explained further that due to the lack of transparency from the school district and from Equity Alliance Minnesota, the third party that administered the survey, parents were not informed of the questions being asked to their students. And even after being asked, the students were told not to inform their parents. Well, Yaskar was uh, very upset when her daughter told her that she was instructed by the teachers not to repeat any of the questions being asked of them. Now, this runs counter to the advice that most parents give their uh, students that if someone or something makes you feel uncomfortable, you need to come to me and report that. Well, Haley said that I do want to say, though, I believe that uh, this wasn't a single case that her teacher made this decision. We had been informed that this came down from the administration and Equity Alliance of Minnesota instructed them to make sure the children did not share this information with their parents. And that should pose a great concern in many parents' eyes. Well, uh, the school district uh, that administered the test was uh, reached out to uh, the district superintendent and Equity Alliance of Minnesota for statements They are not yet forthcoming. Well, a middle school student who is a biological male may run on a girls cross country team this uh, fall in spite of West Virginia's new law banning biological males who have a significant physical advantage from women's sports, according to a federal judge. Lawyers from the ACLU West Virginia had argued to U.S. Circuit Judge Joseph Goodwin on House Bill 3298 would unfairly prevent the 11 year old male student Becky Pepper Jackson from participating on the girls cross country team. Now, Goodwin issued a preliminary injunction on Wednesday, allowing Pepper Jackson to sign up for and participate in the school athletics in the same way as his girl classmates. Well, a fear of the unknown and the discomfort with the unfamiliar have motivated many of the most malignant harms committed by our country's governments on their citizens, Goodwin said, adding, out of fear of those less like them, the powerful have made laws that restricted uh, who could attend what schools, uh, who could work certain jobs, who could marry whom, and even how people can participate 
uh, in their religions. Well, in this case, it's a matter of physiology. The physical advantage of a male athlete over that of a female athlete, undermining strides that were made for female athletes to compete. So it has less to do with ideology and more to do with, well, basic biology. Well, Pepper Jackson began identifying as a girl as a, at a young age and would, would dress as a girl at home, but a boy at school, according to the court filing. The child reportedly was diagnosed with gender dysphoria in 2019, began puberty delaying treatment in 2020, and now is entering the sixth grade. We know that the puberty delaying treatments do not reduce the advantage of male physiology significantly enough uh, to level the playing field, but that has not mattered in the ideologically driven debate over the subject. Meanwhile, teen loneliness, particularly among adolescent girls, has been increasing worldwide since 2012, which researchers, researchers rather said also coincides with the rise in smartphone access and increased Internet use, although more data is needed to determine a definitive link. But that's rather interesting. A recent study that was published in the Journal of Adolescence drew on data collected from over one million 15 and 16 year olds living in 37 different countries around the world. The teens completed a measure of loneliness survey in 2000, 2003, 2012, 2015 and 2018. The questionnaire included topics like I feel like an outsider or left out of things at school. I make friends easily at school. I feel like I belong at school. I feel awkward and out of place in my school. Other students seem to like me and I feel lonely at school. Well, students were instructed to reply on scales of one to four with the following choices. Strongly disagree, disagree, strongly agree and Agree. Well, responses were added together and divided by six to calculate a mean score. Well, in 2012, 15 and 18, 31 countries added questions pertaining to use of technology and availability at home. Students were also asked about their overall general life satisfaction. The data correlated to an increase in school loneliness between 2000 and 2018, with nearly all of the increase occurring between those years. Um, and uh, according to the research worldwide, nearly twice as many adolescents in 2018 scored high in loneliness than in 2000, with much of the increase occurring after 2012. Uh, they noted that even with the recent increases, the majority of students involved in the survey uh, did not report high levels of loneliness. We employed multi-level modeling to examine group level associations among school loneliness as a continuous variable. Digital media use, economic conditions and family size across countries over several years, according to the researchers. And both uh, addictive and interactive models, uh, including year of school loneliness, was high when smartphone access and Internet use were high. Thus, digital media, well, it uh, predicts school loneliness above the um, effect of time. Now, it's rather interesting that. As uh, social media gives greater access when one is not in physical proximity, it has somehow contributed to the level of loneliness, not only in the U.S., but among uh, young girls in particular, but not exclusively uh, teenagers. Uh, You would think that with more avenues for communication and connection, that that would somehow uh, increase one's sense of belonging. But that has certainly not been the case. Young people and not exclusively young people feel more isolated and people communicate quite differently in social media than they do face to face. So, again, I find it rather interesting to consider what this survey has to say about um, loneliness among teenagers, according to this study.
Now, we've got news and traffic coming up here in just a few moments. uh, But in the second hour, we're going to talk with Dr. John Schneider. He's the director of Nursing Home Ministries. We spoke with him in the heart of the pandemic, and he talked at that time about the challenges of trying to maintain ministry in connection with seniors who were in nursing facilities and care homes when they did not have direct access. Well, we're going to catch up with Dr. Schneider to find out how that has um, uh, improved, what kind of innovative ideas, if any, were developed during this season, and what's happening now as access has increased. So Dr. Schneider will join us in the second segment of the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with John Schneider. Dr. Schneider is the director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll talk about how that ministry is faring through and following the pandemic, although we're not completely out of it, as you know. Well, before we uh, take a look at woke language and how it's changing the meaning of words, how would you like to get away for a few days with your family to Colorado Springs and meet our friends at Focus on the Family during your trip? Well, it sounds like a hoot to me. We're giving away a Focus on the Family VIP experience that includes round-trip airfare for you and up to three family members to Colorado Springs, three nights at Great Wolf Lodge, VIP tour of Focus on the Family headquarters, lunch with them, uh, Jim Daly, opportunity to sit in on a Focus on the Family program, and a $300 Visa gift card. You can log on to KPDQ Family Club to enter today at kpdq.com. Now's the time to do it. It sounds like a lot of fun. I've been to Colorado Springs, but never been to Focus on the Family. So I hope, you, uh, hope you'll enter. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, have you noticed how our language is changing? At a congressional hearing on birthing while black, nearly every politician used the words birthing people instead of women or mothers. Asked why, Shalanda Young, the president of Joe Biden's budget um, director, uh, said our language needs to be more inclusive. Now, as far as I've understood, only women give birth to children. So birthing people doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, activists have also changed equality to equity and affirmative action to diversity. Well, the Associated Press no longer uses mistress. It tells reporters to use companion, friend or lover. Worse, certain uh, speech is now labeled violence. Calling a a transgender woman a man is an act of violence, even if it is technically accurate. That's according to Laverne Cox, a transgender actress. Well, last week, the American Booksellers Association apologized for promoting a book on gender dysphoria after activists called it anti-trans. The book is hardly anti-trans. The Economist and the Times of London called it out uh, one of the best books of the year. But the Booksellers Association actually groveled, calling promoting the book violent. Now, the book talks about real cases of young children who have made the transition and the uh, the toll that it had taken. Well, Tim Sandifer, who is uh, of the Goldwater Institute, says it's dangerous to call words violence in a free society in particular. Well, the only way human beings can deal with one another is through language, discussion, debate, he says in his new video. Uh, if you say that's uh, that that's violent, uh, then the only way for us to relate to one another is through power. I push back. Uh, You're white. Why should anyone listen to you about this or that? Well, because what I say has or uh, doesn't have merit on its own. Well, a big problem with the social justice movement is the idea 
that people are um, people's mindset is controlled by their skin color. That may be called anti-racism today, but it's just plain old racism in the past and seems to me present. If I calculate that because you are Caucasian, your skin color determines that you are a racist. How is that anti-racism? Well, linguist John McWhorter, author of the forthcoming book, Woke Racism, adds it can be really hard for us to talk to each other because we don't know what the words we're using mean. The idea is wherever there are white and black disparities, we're supposed to call that phenomenon racism. It really um, uh, it never fully holds together. Latinx is another new term created by activists. And yet, Sandifer points out Latino originally as uh, originated rather as a contraction led by Hispanic people. They chose the word Latino and Latina. And now here's a largely white middle class movement of social justice activists telling other people, no, 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 you can't make distinctions in gender that way. Largely white. Well, the social justice movement in generally is a largely white upper middle class college educative movement. Uh, You hardly find anyone in the Hispanic community who prefers the term Latinx. Uh, He's right. Only 4% of Hispanics prefer the term, and yet we are being pushed toward using it. It's hard to keep up with uh, what's okay and what's forbidden. Students at the University of Illinois, Chicago recently, they became upset because law professor Jason Kilborn included the N-word with only the first letter Uh, shown in an exam on employment discrimination. He used the same word in exams for 10 years. But this year, one student said that she had to seek counsel immediately after the exam to calm herself. Well, McWhorter says uh, those students are lying. Why? Well, claiming that kind of victimhood gives them a sense of belonging, of togetherness, a sense that they're contributing to a struggle that their ancestors dealt with in a more concrete way. Well, the students demanded the professor be punished. He was. The law school suspended him in the name of social justice. Well, social justice seeks to redistribute wealth and power between groups to suit what some political authority thinks is the right outcome. Uh, Social justice just means it's time to pay attention to the minorities who never got justice. I push back. No, social justice says we're going to recognize how people live their lives, silence some groups that have been heard more often. And that's essentially what it has come down to. It's as if America is moving toward 1984, which is George Orwell's novel, probably not widely known by younger people, in which government controls people's thoughts by creating a new language, Newspeak. Now, we at the time that 1984 came out, of course, prior to 1984, it was a forward-looking book, thought this could never happen in America, and yet that's precisely where we are. Well, the only way to stop it, McWhorter points out, is to push back. Enlightened America needs to develop a backbone, start getting used to being called racist on Twitter, just withstand it, keep your voices out there, make uh, make us understand what true justice is. Now, there are true racists. I've had encounters with many of them over the course of my 65 years, but that doesn't make every Caucasian person I've ever met one. Uh, And to hold individuals accountable for their actual deeds is far more useful than everyone for the deeds of what some have actually perpetrated. Well, a federal appeals court has concluded that a church in Washington state has the right to sue over a state law requiring health insurers to cover abortions, partially overturning a lower court decision dismissing the case. Now, you probably thought this was resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court when the Um, Catholic sisters came before the court. Well, a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit 
issued a unanimous decision last Thursday reviving the Cedar Park Assembly of God of Kirkland's lawsuit against Governor Jay Inslee and Washington Insurance Commissioner Myron Kreidler over a health care law known as Senate Bill 6219. This is a state law. All three judges were appointed by former President George W. Bush. Well, the panel opinion concluded that Cedar Park plausibly alleged that the law forced the church's health insurer to stop offering a plan with abortion coverage restrictions. The ruling argued that Cedar Park could not procure comparable replacement coverage. Well, the state argument that Cedar Park did not suffer an injury because SB 6219 did not prevent Kaiser Permanente from continuing to offer a plan that restricted restricted abortion coverage fails because Kaiser Permanente reasonably understood the plain language of the Senate bill as precluded such restrictions. And it acted accordingly when it removed the restrictions from Cedar Park's health plan, the panel ruled. Well, although the state argues that Cedar Park did not suffer any injury caused by Senate Bill 6219 because other health insurers offered plans that would meet Cedar Park's requirements, this argument also fails given that Kaiser Permanente dropped Cedar Park's abortion coverage restrictions due to Senate Bill 6219, and there's no evidence in the record clearly demonstrating that Cedar Park could obtain acceptable coverage at the time it filed its complaint. While the panel didn't fully overturn the lower court decision, agreeing with the district court by rejecting the church's equal protection claim for lack of standing, well, the judges uh, ruled that the complaint does not plausibly allege that Cedar Park suffered a denial of equal treatment due to Senate Bill 6219's interaction with Washington's conscience objection statute. Such differential treatment does not constitute discrimination because the providers are not similarly situated to religious organizations. The judge continued, this is because the providers are in the business of providing health services while religious organizations merely purchase Health coverage. Well, the Ninth Circuit revived the church's lawsuit against the law requiring health care plans cover abortion. And it continues. We'll follow the story to its final conclusion, should there someday actually be one. Up next, Dr. John Schneider, Director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll talk about how the ministry has fared through this season. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm about to have with John Schneider, who is the director of Nursing Home Ministry. Now, the last time he and I spoke, it was somewhere in the middle of the pandemic. We are technically post-pandemic, although... Uh, how things are going to proceed is still a big question. But I wanted to find out how Nursing Home Ministries is faring uh, in this season where we have a little bit more openness and how we can, as the church, minister to those who are in nursing facilities. Pastor John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Georgine. Thank you for having me on. Well, as you know, I have a heart for seniors in our community. I think part of that is just that I was nurtured by senior citizens in my early, my formative Christian years, and they've always held a very um, close place in my heart. And I'm concerned about um, benign neglect that so often characterizes the way the church responds to older people. And when I learned about your involvement with nursing home ministries, it was a tremendous encouragement to me. So I wanted to find out, first of all, how you are uh, are faring during this sort of post-pandemic season where things are opening up just a bit. And sort of the fallout of um, not being able to have the kind of face-to-face ongoing ministry that 
uh, Nursing Home Ministries has had for so many years. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your uh, interest and uh, continued uh, concern for uh, the work of uh, NHM Nursing Home Ministries. Yeah, it's been a it's been a difficult time, and uh, when the pandemic hit initially, I think we were, uh, as a ministry, our board was very much concerned that um, we wouldn't survive it mm-hmm. uh, simply because uh, our ministry is one of face to face encounters and and getting into the the care centers and and ministering one on one with uh, with these individuals and. We didn't know if we'd be able to uh, uh, to survive, uh, but as it's proven out, uh, again, the Lord is very faithful, uh, and our chaplains have been very creative uh, in coming up with uh, uh, new ways to uh, to reach out, even though they couldn't uh, be there physically. Uh, they uh, most of our chaplains learned how to to operate, uh, run Zoom meetings, and and uh, did a lot of. Uh, uh, written materials mm-hmm. uh, that they they handed out and and it as it turns out we actually uh in the past uh, 15 months have actually reached more uh seniors than we did uh, before and so we we're, we're just thinking uh it's just a, an answer to prayer and i believe that uh it just shows that <clears throat> when the uh, when the adversary is is uh, at work god is uh at work even more and when uh, some doors were closed, others were opened. And uh, so now as we're, we're about 70% open now, about 70% of our chaplains are uh, nationwide or back into their facilities. Uh, but they're going back with additional tools that they may not have had or probably wouldn't have developed had they not had the pandemic not hit. So in many respects, uh, it was a, a positive thing, though at the same time, uh, our, our seniors suffered uh, immeasurably. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we heard all kinds of horror stories of, of, uh, of some of our people that we administered to uh, passing away simply out of, uh, uh, you know, just because no one, of, of depression. And, and uh, just uh, it, was, it was horrifying, especially for those chaplains that uh, really uh, had, a, had a, a close uh, relationship with these individuals that uh, they could no longer see, but again, about seventy percent are, uh, are back in and uh, doing one-on-one visits. Uh, it's just in several states that are still having some difficulty, and now with the uh, the variants, uh, mm-hmm. some facilities are being a little bit more cautious. Uh, what was interesting, however, too, is uh, in one particular facility that I go to, uh, we were only not able to visit for a couple of months. Because the people made such a stink, they uh, they uh, uh, wanted us to be there so badly that they uh, they classified us as essential workers, so that we could uh, go in and uh, continue to hold services and uh, and meet with the people. So that happened in some places, but uh, not in all. Yeah, yeah. Well, that epidemic of loneliness <clears throat> that plagued so many elderly people who were not. Uh, given the opportunity to see family, friends, to yeah. be ministered to, yeah. just really broke your heart. And you're right, so many just um, sort of gave up the ghost, if yeah. you will, out of sheer loneliness. You wrote in your December newsletter that um, antiquated forms of relating to one another aren't an option. Uh, but for Christians, maybe they should be. You make the point that the elderly still prefer a slower pace of communication that's done through <laughs> face-to-face conversations, handwritten letters, landline phones, and so on. During the pandemic, where you were not able to be there physically, 
Did you find that seniors adapted to Zoom or uh, written communication? What was the most effective way to reach those who could be reached in some remote way? Uh, surprisingly, I think they adapted very well. I'm, I was I was a little bit skeptical, uh, but uh, the reports that we've gotten uh, from from our chaplains that uh, and, and many of our chaplains are older themselves, and so this was all you know uh, very new to them as well. Uh, they they got a tremendous response, and the and a lot of places the uh, the facilities themselves, uh, the directors uh, saw to it that the uh, uh, the people were uh, online and and could be at the at the uh, at the services, and they did all kinds of creative things with music. <clears throat> uh, they had they created their own videos and uh, and sent those out. Uh, uh, we 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 took in uh, various games, Bible centered games that they could do, and and uh, as a form of Bible study, uh, all kinds of things that. Uh, uh, that went on that were uh, unique in the sense that we had not done it before, uh, but I think a lot of that is going to be continuing. One <laughs> chaplain uh, uh, would write a, a weekly devotional, and it became so popular that uh, he was, he's down in uh, southern Oregon, and uh, became so popular that uh, the other facilities were clamoring, uh, send those to us as well. So, uh, again, it just uh, God has been so faithful, and uh, the Spirit has really moved but it's not. There's nothing like that face to face. Being able to to look at them and to touch them and and, and to pray with them, uh, and and it's nice to be nice to be going back. Well, I I'm so grateful for your persistence, your innovation uh, in reaching out to these men and women who, in many cases, wouldn't have connection at all. So I, I commend Nursing Home Ministries for being creative. And I'm also encouraged to be reminded that God always has a redemptive side to every yep. story. Where the pandemic was devastating for so many, God always presents with those kinds of circumstances a means for his people to reach out. And the fact that you were reaching more seniors yep. during this season uh, is just testimony to that. Well, and and the other thing was, you know, and, and this is this is just part of the administrative thing, uh, we were concerned that uh, financially uh, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to survive because, uh, you know, we weren't doing the ministry that we were doing before. And then would people continue to give? And we just finished one of our best uh, fiscal years financially that uh, we've ever had. So people uh, were not only uh, continued to support, but continued to support well. They they were very faithful and, uh, and God... Uh, inspired them to, to continue to give. So that, that was exciting as well, though, you know, not near as exciting as, as getting back in and seeing the people once again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're talking with Dr. John Schneider. He's the director of Nursing Home Ministries. And uh, as you've heard during this pandemic, it brought with it some challenges. Uh, well, NHM rose to the challenge. We're going to continue to talk about ministering to the elderly among us. Those were your Sunday school teachers, those who carry the gospel through a generation to our own uh, and how we can honor them uh, in their final days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Snyder. He is the executive director of Nursing Home Ministries, and we're talking about 
post-pandemic ministry, what now uh, after the pandemic? I shouldn't exactly say after. We're in sort of a holding pattern. We don't know what the future might hold. But still, the question is, how does ministry continue? Again, referencing your December newsletter, you write that as age naturally deteriorates physical abilities, it becomes more difficult to travel and the nuances of adjusting to such things as wheelchairs, hearing loss, poor eyesight and the loss of mobility demand a lot of work. And patience. As I read that, I thought about my mom, who's uh, 90 and a half, and all of those things present something of a challenge. It literally yes. changes the way you move, the way you think about everything, the way you approach everything. It, it is a challenge to do that in our fast-paced society. You know, I just turned 65 uh, about a month ago, and I think about, you know, how many more years of mobility and fast pace do I have left? And here I am moving at a snail's pace to walk <laughs> alongside my mother. You have to be intentional when you yes. when you decide I am going to slow down and acknowledge the value of senior citizens in my life personally and in general. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about the value of this community that contributed so much that brought us to this pass in the church in terms of Sunday school teachers and uh, youth group leaders who ministered to us and now we to another generation? How should we view them and what should our commitments be to ministering to them, even though their value in terms of what they might reciprocate has diminished? Yeah, I, I, I really don't think that value has diminished. It's just uh, you're right. It's just in a different form. Um, I really believe that our elderly are, are uh, America's uh, unreached people group. Uh, you know, we talk about sending missionaries to uh, to other parts of the country uh, to, to the unreached mm-hmm. uh, people, and I, I really think our seniors are those today, simply because. And I don't think it's a, uh, as you said earlier, I don't think it's intentional necessarily, um, but be, we are fast paced and we're busy and. Uh, they just kind of get lost in the shuffle because they, uh, they in many cases don't make a lot of demands, and uh, and uh, especially those that are in a care center, we figure well they're being cared for, uh, but it's not the same. And I think the church, especially uh, all the things that they uh, were important to them, uh, have kind of been put on the shelf. They their friends have. Uh, you know, either passed away or somewhere other facility or or somewhere else. Uh, a lot of t- a lot of them can't get out to their church, uh, which has been such a part, an important part of their lives. Uh, in many cases, the family doesn't come and see them because they're busy, and, and so they're they're alone. And I think one of the things that uh, the church, uh, through a ministry such as we have at NHM, can do is to uh, is to see to it that they have. Uh, someone there who not only is just it's not just there just to uh, put in some time, but is there and really has a heart for them and really has a heart for the Lord and wants to see them experience the best that the Lord has for them in these uh, latter years. Uh, I like to consider uh, uh, refer to these people as those on the edge of eternity. Mm-hmm. In fact, all of us are. I think that they just realize it a little bit more, I think, and a little bit more aware of it. Uh, the older I get, the more I'm aware that I'm on the edge of eternity. Um, but I think we need to we need to be intentional in our. Uh, if you have a mom or dad or or a, a friend that you know is in a in a care facility, don't just assume that someone is there, uh, seeing them and and caring for them and and just visiting them. Uh, make it a make it a priority to take the time uh, to 
go and see them and uh, let them know that they have not been forgotten, that they're still loved, and that you still value uh, uh, their input. Uh, one of the most exciting things, and, and God has a sense of humor again, I think, because uh, when I was a young pastor, one of the, the things I disliked the most was visiting care centers, because I just thought maybe it was just a sense of, I realized that one day this might be me, uh, but I back when I was a kid, the, the smells and, and things in care centers were just not something that appealed to me. But here now God has put me in this <laughs> ministry, and I find that uh, it's been the most rewarding ministry mm-hmm. uh, of, of all that I've done in my 70 years. So um, people, you shouldn't go into it feeling that, well, I'm, I'm going to get something out of this, but you will. If you make it a priority, uh, you will be blessed. Uh, God will not allow you to, to do a ministry like this without coming away uh, feeling, think, oh, wow, you know, that I should have been doing this. Long ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, God does have a sense of humor. I remember when I was 16, I said, Lord, I'm willing to do anything for you. I'm willing to go anywhere. I just don't want to do public speaking. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of in the yeah, same situation. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay, Lord, I, I get the joke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what about, you know, I think the church is so uh, youth focus that um, our energy and resource and and rightly so is focused on young people. There are those who are in their senior years who have yet to come to know Christ. And the calculation is, oh, well, they had their opportunity and, you know, (laughs) they've they've had their their shot at it. What do you say to those who uh, have yet to to know Christ? And the the uh, expectation is, well, they're not interested at that point in life. What's your experience? I find it to be just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Now, I know statistically, uh, they say that they don't. But I think part of that is simply because maybe these statistics are skewered because people aren't really going to them and uh, presenting the gospel to them. I found that people in the, in uh, their later years, as I said, uh, have this sense of their mortality. And they realize that uh, they're approaching their final days. And uh, they're very open uh, to the gospel. Uh, they want to know what's what's next, what comes after this. And uh, if you can share the love of Christ with them and the, and the, and the plan of redemption, um, I find in many, many, in fact, most cases, uh, people are very open and responsive to, to receiving uh, the love of Christ and to receiving his salvation if it's simply offered to them. Yeah. Well, let me ask you um, practically, how can we uh, reach out to and minister to seniors, either those we've known, you know, somebody who lived in our neighborhood or someone who used to go to the church. Talk about uh, if there are opportunities within nursing home ministries or how a, an individual might reach out to seniors in their life. There, you don't have to become a chaplain. We would love if someone has a, a feels a call of God and, and has a, a compassion for, for elderly and and a love for the Lord and a desire to share the gospel in, in many ways. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be sharing preaching or sharing a Bible study. Uh, most of our most effective chaplains are those who just go and, and sit down and visit one-on-one, get to know them, uh, find out what their, where their needs are, and then uh, direct them to Christ. Um, I think uh, anybody could do this. This is a job not for a professional clergy, mm-hmm. though we have some, uh, but we're finding more and more of our people are just uh, regular uh, people who love the Lord and have a, have a love for the elderly and want to, to serve the Lord in that way. Um, we have all kinds of opportunities. Uh, if, if someone wants to go but doesn't know what to do, we can put them in touch with one of our chaplains. They can uh, go along and just see what's done and 
but even even if you don't want to do that, I would just suggest if you know someone, uh, maybe maybe contact your pastor. Is, is there someone in your church that is is confined to a um, to a uh, care center? Uh, find out who they are. Uh, schedule a visit. Just go sit down and talk with them. I think it'll you'll, you'll discover it'll be one of the most rewarding uh, experiences of your life. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I love the way you describe uh, seniors among us as those on the edge of eternity. And while that does apply to all of us, the older you get, the more you realize your own mortality. Right. And it's a healthy thing to be uh, more aware of that yes. and to seize the opportunity that we have to reach out to and minister to those in facilities in particular uh, who may be somewhat isolated um, post-pandemic and beyond mm-hmm. is a tremendous opportunity for ministry. You pointed out again in your December newsletter that Jesus continually reached out to people where they were, no matter how awkward, hard or painful it was. Uh, it, in many ways, avoiding and ignoring, abandoning the elderly isn't something that happens intentionally, uh, but it's done out of convenience because building relationships with them is just too hard. Well, it may be challenging but it's also, as you pointed out, uh, extremely rewarding. And God calls us to do hard things, and he blesses us in the midst of them. Very if someone true. wants to be in touch, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, probably the best way is go to visit our website at uh, uh, nhminc at comcast.net. And uh, you can uh, visit the website, uh, uh, NHM, Nurse, Nursing Home Ministries, the website. Uh, that's our email address. Or you can call the office. Um, I, I, <laughs> it's on speed dial. I don't even know the number. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to know your but own numbers. Just call anymore. the nursing home ministry <laughs> office, and uh, we can put you in touch with uh, with someone that uh, a chaplain or or someone that uh, they could go along and and mentor you. You, you. We wouldn't put you out there cold turkey, um, but there's there's so many uh, opportunities. Just this week, I uh, I work at. Costco part-time, and one of the uh, young men there came up and said, hey, my, my wife's a, a, a activities director out in, uh, out in Tigard. Uh, could you, they need people to come and visit. Could you, uh, could you come and visit or find someone that could come out and visit the people there? And, of course, that's, that's what we do. So uh, we're, we'll be doing that. And so there are opportunities just yeah. come up constantly. There's more, more need than, the, you know, the harvest is plenty plentiful, but the workers are few. Yeah, and this is, as you pointed out, an unreached people group yes. that God has uh, has uh, given us the opportunity to minister to. Well, let me just say thank you for your leadership with Nursing Home Ministries and to the chaplains and those who work with uh, NHM faithfully reaching out to those who are in care facilities around our community and across the country. How grateful we are for your example and for this ministry. Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgine, for, and for the opportunity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I so appreciate uh, John Schneider and the chaplains with Nursing Home Ministries and others who minister to those in care facilities around our community and around the country. It is thankless work in that it's not uh, put upon a pedestal. You know, if you're a worship leader in a big church, man, you're a big deal. But if you work in nursing home ministry, you know, there's not a whole lot of applause that uh, is associated with that. But I know that God honors uh, those who minister in those kinds of circumstances. And I I want to just express my high regard for men and women who serve the elders among us. I wanted to repeat something that um, 
I saw on Facebook a while ago. I, I think I may have read it about a week ago, but in the context of our conversation, I wanted to share it again to remind us of um, some of these men and women among us whose history we may be completely unfamiliar with and may disregard as of any significance, but needs to be considered. Imagine being born in 1900 when you're 14 years old, World War One begins and ends when you're 18 with 22 million dead. Shortly after the world pandemic, flu called Spanish kills 50 million people. You go out alive and free and you're 20 years old. Then at the age of 29, you survive the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment and hunger. Now, keep in mind, at the time, they didn't know how any of this was going to turn out. They lived through it. Nazis came to power at age 33. You're 39 when World War II begins And it ends when you're 45 during the Holocaust. Six million Jews died. There will be a total of more than 60 million dead before it ends. When you're 52nd, um, when you're 52, the Korean War begins. When you're 64, the Vietnam War begins and ends when you're 75. A baby born in 1985 believes his grandparents have no idea how hard life is and survived several wars and disasters. A boy born in 1995 and 25 believes that the end of the world comes when his Amazon package takes more than three days to arrive, or if he doesn't exceed 15, like for his posted photo on Facebook or Instagram. In 2020, many of us live in comfort, having access to various sources of entertainment at home and often have more than needed. But people complain about everything. They have electricity, phone, food, hot water, and a roof over their heads. None of this existed in previous generations. But humanity survived much more serious circumstances and never lost the joy of life. Maybe it's time for us to be a bit less selfish, stop whining and crying, and to look to others for a glimmer of their value. And then, oh, I didn't bring the other piece in, but anyway, you get the idea. I hope we'll take to heart the opportunity we have to reach out to those who, without whom, without many of whom we would have no testimony to have responded to. Well, months before the mega church Hillsong opened its new outpost in Atlanta, Georgia, the pastor sought advice on how to build a church in a pandemic. Well, he sought that advice from Facebook. Well, the social media giant had a proposition. Sam Collier, the pastor, recalled in an interview uh, to use the church as a case study to explore how churches can go further, farther on Facebook. And this was during the height of the pandemic. For months, Facebook developers, they met every week with Hillsong And they explored what the church would look like on Facebook and what apps they might create for uh, financial giving, video capability or live streaming. And when it came time for Hillsong's grand opening in June, the church issued a news release saying it was partnering with Facebook and started streaming its services exclusively on that platform. Well, beyond that, Mr. Collier couldn't uh, share many uh, specifics. He had signed a nondisclosure agreement. They're teaching us. We are teaching them, he said. Together, we're discovering what the future of the church could be on Facebook. Now, think about that for a moment. Now, during the season of live stream, we may think we know, but this might be something a little different. Facebook, which recently passed one trillion dollar market in market capitalization, may seem like an unusual partner for a church whose primary goal is to share the message of Jesus. But the company has been cultivating partnerships with a wide range of faith communities over the past few years, from individual congregations to large denominations like the Assemblies of God and the Church of God in Christ. Now, this is interesting in a season when censorship of conservative speech 
is being debated as well. Now, after the coronavirus pandemic pushed religious groups to explore new ways to operate, Facebook sees even greater strategic opportunity to draw highly engaged users onto its platform. Now, the company aims to become the virtual home for religious communities and wants churches, mosques, synagogues and other religious organizations uh, to um, embed their religious life into its platform from hosting worship services and socializing more casually to soliciting money. It's a developing new uh, uh, product, including uh, audio and prayer sharing aimed at faith groups. Now, how might this look in the future? Well, virtual religious life is not replacing in-person community anytime soon. At least we hope it's not. And even supporters acknowledge the limits of an exclusively online experience. That's not what God ultimately had in mind. But many religious groups see new opportunity to spiritually influence even more people on Facebook, the world's largest and arguably most influential social media company. The partnerships reveal how big tech and religion are converging far beyond simply moving services to the Internet. Facebook is shaping the future of religious experience itself as it has done for political and social life. Now, is this a good thing? It certainly could be. Could it be a perverted thing or a thing that is ultimately perverted? Well, it could be. Well, the company's efforts to court faith groups comes as it's trying to repair its image among Americans who've lost confidence in the platform, especially on issues of privacy. Facebook has faced scrutiny for its role in the country's growing disinformation crisis and... Um, Efforts to censor speech and the breakdown of societal trust, especially around politics, and regulators have grown concerned about its outsized power. Well, over the past week, the president has criticized the company for its role in the spread of false information about COVID-19 vaccines. Last month, Facebook executives pitched their efforts to religious groups at a virtual faith summit. The company's chief operating officer shared an online resource hub with tools to build congregations on the platform saying faith organizations and social media are a natural fit because fundamentally both are about connection. Our hope is that one day people will host religious services in virtual reality spaces as well or use augmented reality as an educational tool to teach their children the story of their faith. A lot of questions arise out of this kind of partnership and only time will tell, but something to look and listen for in the days ahead. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend and Clark Hilton for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for, well, making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, I hope you will join us as Owen Strahan will join us, the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.